Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. America prides itself on being a representative democracy, and responsive government is important. It prevents a government from abusing or neglecting the needs of its citizens. Responsible government is also very important, something that's been made clear by the coronavirus epidemic. Importantly, these two qualities, responsiveness and responsibility, do not necessarily go hand in hand. My guest today is Garrett Jones, and he explores this conflict in his new book, 10% Less Democracy, Why You Should Trust Elites a Little More and the Masses a Little Less, published at the beginning of this year. Garrett is an Associate Professor of Economics and the BB&T Professor for the Study of Capitalism at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Garrett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could just briefly give me the thesis of the book, but sort of put it in the context of the of, of sort of the coronavirus pandemic and how sort of government is responding to that pandemic. Do you believe it supports your thesis or uh, does it make you rethink it at all? No, I think it gives strong support for the thesis of 10% less democracy. Um, One of the things that drew me to the topic was seeing how when I was a Senate staffer long ago, senators seemed to become cowardly in some way right before an election. And a variety of evidence that I review in the book shows that by normal standards, Politicians are worse at their jobs in election years. And so it's little surprise that we see the president and Congress uh, making grand political hay over something that should be solved quite quickly and rapidly and aggressively. Uh, another part of this, uh, where my book has a strong message for how to respond to the corona pandemic, is that um, central bank independence is an excellent model for how um, when power is delegated, from when power is delegated to independent agencies where the people in charge have long terms and they're separate from the political process, you seem to get good outcomes. We know this is true with central bank independence. It's easy to test. So in countries that have central banks like the Fed, where people have these very long terms, they can't be fired by the president, they can't be fired by a member of Congress, um, they just seem to be better at their jobs. Um, It's something you might think could be true in theory. It turns out it's actually true in practice. And the Chapter four in the book shows how those lessons from central bank independence apply to judicial independence. It's why we don't want judges who can be fired by a politician. Um, It probably applies to electricity regulation, telecom regulation. I didn't discuss public health independence, but it seems obvious that we could have a public health board um, that would work like the Federal Reserve, three to five members appointed by Congress, confirmed by the, you know, appointed by the president, confirmed by Congress, and they could be making long-term decisions. They could be making immediate decisions about public health that no politician could veto. Um, I think that would probably be getting us better results right now if we had active experts, independent of the political process, with the power to um, act quickly. Right. Um, so, so in a way, there, you almost couldn't pick a worse time for something like this to happen than in an election year. Probably there's a lot of hard decisions that need to be made. They're difficult you know, at any point, but for it to happen, you know, seven, you know, seven months before an election, uh, 
sort of really crystallizes the problem you're addressing. Exactly. This is something that social scientists had studied in a lot of other ways. Uh, economists and political scientists both um, had seen how politicians act differently right before an election. On Capitol Hill, we say that a senator is in cycle when he's less than two years away. And for instance, um, economic research shows that senators are less likely to vote for a free trade bill when they're in cycle, when they're less than two years away from re-election. And um, even though that's something that economists tend to agree on, it seems like good, good policy to open trade. Hillary Clinton actually embodied this perfectly. Um, in her first four years as the senator from New York, she voted for every free trade bill. In her last two years, in her first term as senator of New York, she voted against every free trade bill. So politicians uh, seem to become worse at their jobs right before an election. You know, and I realize this is sort of an idea that you, you haven't thought a lot about, uh, but you mentioned the, the idea of a public health board. And the first thing I thought of is, you know, there's currently this debate uh, about, you know, how long we should have people stay at home uh, versus sort of reopening the economy and how that influences, you know, how we design sort of any kind of economic support measures. Well, what happened when these independent boards sort of disagree? I mean, you, I mean, you can have a public health board saying, uh, you know, we need to keep the, the economy and people at home shut down for a long time. But we could have, a, I don't know, a fiscal, you know, a fiscal board wanting to do something uh, differently or, or, or the Federal Reserve. So what happens when the boards would disagree in a, in a, in a, at a time of crisis? A fair point um, and a good question. I mean, the same thing that happens when we have the independent judiciary um, pushing for some things, and we have the independent central bank pushing for something else, and the somewhat independent Federal Trade Commission pushing for yet a third thing. So industries are often regulated by the FTC. They're kind of independent. The Fed is deciding who to make big loans to. Uh, they're quite independent. The, you can imagine a central, you can imagine a, a Supreme Court deciding that certain loans or certain industry regulations are illegal. They're independent. But, um, you know, I mean, we know in our system, the Supreme Court has the final say on things. So as long as you have some kind of arbiter, some kind of order of operations of who's the final boss, um, it can be a hassle, but it's the same hassle we have whenever the president disagrees with Congress or whenever the president disagrees with the Supreme Court. This is something that happens a lot in democracies and we have tools for solving them. And this could apply to a public health board just as easily as it applies to um, the Fed. Um, so I mean, sort of one criticism that's been leveled, I mean, there's there's a lot of debate about how government is currently in real time sort of responding. But then there's sort of a larger issue is that even though the phrase sort of black swan gets talked about a lot with this pandemic, it really doesn't to me seem like this, you know, wildly unexpected, you know, low probability event. We you know we've had a number of, particularly it seems like over the past maybe 15 years, we've had a, you know, a number of outbreaks, not of this level, but I could think no. of uh, SARS, I can think of uh, the H1N1, uh, Ebola, uh, the West Nile. So it's been sort of these, you know, kind of you know, fairly high profile outbreaks, even if they didn't necessarily affect uh, America significantly other than the H1N1. Yet we seem to be wildly unprepared. People talk about where are the ventilators, but, you know, why don't we have, you know, simply massive stockpile? Do you think that part of the problem is here is that not having sort of more expertise and more things sort of, um, you know, given sort of outsourced to the experts means sort of more short-sighted thinking and less sort of long-term planning, more sort of future-oriented thinking? Um, I think that's a great way to phrase it. And I 
but I, I'd even be more happy to phrase it as a critique of the voters themselves. Political elites, um, high-level politicians, they've, they've been hearing these briefings for years about how a global um, flu-type pandemic is the big risk for the world, right? right? This is something that the mid to high-level folks in government have known about for years, right? This is something that people do simulations of. You know, I saw a story in the paper a while ago about how in the early parts of the Trump administration, they actually did run a simulation about a scenario like this in the, that involved the State Department. And the problem is, is that it's hard to get elected officials to pony up cash for something that might happen 20 years from now. And so this is a weakness of democracy. Democracies are slow to respond to these, um, you know, problems that are likely to happen over the next 20 to 30 years or 30% chance it happens over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, it's very hard to get democracies excited about this. So this is just the kind of place where you want some kind of agency that has independence from the voters and real power and some kind of budget. And um, we, we'd be in a much stronger position if we had um, been in that situation. Now, the East Asian countries were ready for this in a way that uh, Europe and North America were not. Right. And it may simply be a matter of the fact that they saw SARS up close. They didn't see tens of thousands die from SARS, but they saw dozens to hundreds die. And seeing that happen close up um, gave them that, you know, at least 10, you know, a medium run memory. Um, I'm sure the medium run memory of what's about to happen to us, as horrifying as it's going to be, will shape our voters for 10 to 20 years, and then they'll just go forget about it. Would, uh, would this involve attracting sort of a higher caliber of public servant than what we currently, we've certainly seen some really great examples of some super qualified uh, people, you know, many of the uh, public health officials that we see when the president gives his press conferences, but do, do, is in the United States and, you know, whatever cultural differences with some other places, do we attract that kind of person to serve in government, to serve in those kinds of rules, those kinds of roles where they would you know, have more authority? That's a good question, right? Because, but I, when I'm thinking about something like the public health board, I'm not talking about just creating a new label for the Centers for Disease Control. I'm talking about creating a new institution that um, has its own power where the leaders of it would be appointed by the president, confirmed like by the Senate, just like other high level positions. And so you, you would get some of these folks, somebody like uh, Dr. Fauci um, would be an, a natural um, person to be on a, on a the public health board. Um, you know, with a five to 10 year term, somebody like Scott Gottlieb as well. But also there are other people, say in academia or people who are university prep, people who've served as administrators and also as researchers. A little bit like the kind of folks who wind up at the Federal Reserve. Um, economists who are working at the Federal Reserve Board tend to be people who have been um, academic economists who also have managed a staff. They've also done some congressional briefings at some times. They kind of know how the system works on some level. That's what that, that fusion of something does seem to percolate to the top in the Washington, D.C. environment. Not always, not for every seat, but um, happens in the judiciary as well. The higher you move in the judiciary, there's a good chance that the reason you got promoted is because you could manage a staff fairly well and move enough decisions out the door. So our system for screening with all its flaws seems to let at least a fair amount of cream rise to the top. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are people who see, um, you know, maybe hear, hear this or read, it, read the at least just even read the title of your book and think, this is just purely a contrarian thought exercise. Uh, you know, at a time when, when a time everyone is, you know, has been criticizing elites, you know, the 
you know, we don't need experts anymore. They, 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 you know, they've ruined the U.S. economy. This is the last thing we should be doing is giving elites more authority, more control. It goes completely counter to everything we've been hearing, you know, certainly since uh, President, Trump, President Trump's election. Yeah. And um, what I do is I bring to the bear absolutely mainstream evidence that shows that when the choice is between not current elites versus utopia or current elites versus my favorite person on Twitter, but if instead the choice is current elites versus the current masses, the current elites start looking a lot better. And so I provide a lot of evidence for that. When I, like I said, when I look at the Senate, senators behave, seem to behave better the further are they are away from the voters, um, the more distant they are from re-election. Um, central bankers seem to be, behave better when they have more independence from the political process. Judges seem to behave better when they're detached from the voters. And to bring more extreme examples, more creative examples, um, countries get good financial advice by having to pay attention to what their bondholders want. You know, all the rich countries borrow money in the global financial markets, and governments keep their eye on what the global financial markets want from them. They try to behave in a way that will keep their interest rates low, that'll make it easy for them to borrow. And that kind of discipline is another form of elite influence. And I think it's one that should be expanded by creating some kind of annual or twice a year council where people who hold U.S. treasuries meet with the, tre meet with the treasury secretary and, and perhaps pass non-binding resolutions on what the path of U.S. government policy should be. Um, there's been considerable sort of, I'm sure that, you know, since the Fed was formed uh, over a hundred years ago, there's been considerable criticism of the Federal Reserve. And there's been even more criticism since uh, the financial crisis. You know, sort of the most recent flavor of that criticism is that the Fed Federal Reserve has been too worried about inflation. And in a way, it seems that the Federal Reserve's reputation is maybe at, at, a, at, a, at a low point, maybe not the lowest point, but at a low point. Why are you so confident uh, that the Federal Reserve you know, provides sort of a real world model of how um, experts can do a good job? Everyone else th seems to think that's exactly the model showing experts cannot do a good job. Yeah, because what people are doing, especially in the world of social media, is they're comparing the current Federal Reserve to their favorite Twitter fantasy. They're not comparing things to an actual counterfactual that can be measured in any way. They're living in a dream world. And so I think people should actually have to show evidence for their claims if they want to try to persuade people of them. And we have a lot of evidence in economics that shows that when you look across countries um, and you look at the countries that have more independent central banks, ones that are more independent of the voters and have ones that are less independent of the voters, the ones that are more independent have lower, more stable inflation. They seem to have fewer financial crises. That seems like a good thing. And uh, this works even with a before and after. When you look at countries that switch from being more Having, having a more political uh, central bank where the president can fire the head of the bank to a place where the president can't fire the head of the bank. Um, New Zealand's the best example of this. They switch from being a very politicized central bank to being a very independent one very quickly. Their inflation rate came down, their economy got a lot better. Um, you can more or less say they lived happily ever after, at least on that issue. So when we go away from the realms of, I can fantasize a better world, and we go toward the realm of show me the data, all of a sudden independent central banks like the Federal Reserve look pretty good. Is the problem really just, it's, 
the politicians, but of course the problem isn't just the politicians, is that the politicians are listening to us. So if we're a big part of the problem, what do you do about that? Um, you know, should all, should all of us be able to vote? Should only us who can pass a 20, a 20 question test be able to vote? Uh, so, so that we, we know something about uh, supply and demand or some basic economic theories. Uh, do you have, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, um, I have a chapter that's on this topic and I chose the title of the chapter very specifically. It's called this chapter does not apply to your country. And that's where I say, like, I want people to basically just think about what politics would be like with more informed or less informed voters. What would happen if you change things? What I try to do there is I try to show people that, A, there are countries around the world, including perhaps the country you live in, where countries do have ways to give more weight to voters with more formal levels of education or um, who have greater levels of you know, cognitive skill. Uh, my favorite example of this comes from Ireland. So the, the Irish Senate isn't that strong. It's a little bit like the House of Lords in Britain. But 10% um, of the seats in the Irish Senate, coincidentally, 10% of their seats are set aside. And the only people who can vote in the elections for those seats, those six seats in, their, in the Irish Senate, are people who went to one of Ireland's two best universities. So since Ireland's a small country, the equivalent for the U.S. would be something like people who went to the top 150 or 200 best universities in the US. Um, so they just, they found a way to just give a small weight, a little thumb on the scales to uh, more informed voters. Um, a version of this that's more widely used, um, controversial, but used in over two dozen countries across the European Union, is some kind of restriction on voting rights for people who are intellectually disabled. And this is an important topic to think about. I like to remind people in my book that many of the taboos, many of the things you think could never happen, are actually already happening in your country, or at least a country that you've heard of. So, you know, dozens of countries in the European Union have some kind of rule that says if you are intellectually disabled and a court's decided that you're not competent to pay your own bills or buy a house, then you are not allowed to vote. And I draw on a European Union legal document that discusses this to just point out just how seriously people take this issue. So we already have restrictions in many of the rich democracies on who can vote and who can't vote. And rather than saying it would be terrible if there were any restriction, I want people to know, hey, these restrictions are already here and I want you to ask yourself, should we have a little bit more or a little bit less? Why are you confident that better informed people would not vote for things that just tend to help them and not, not less informed people? That's gonna be a very self-serving kind of democracy. Yeah, so this is, but, but um, that's, that's, a, that's definitely a cost. And that's why I, d I go to some great lengths to show that, for instance, in the US, members of different ethnic groups are, graduate from high school, for instance, at a, pro at, not exactly, but pretty close to the same rate. So some people might have some stereotypes in mind thinking that say, perhaps uh, whites graduate from high school at far higher rates than African-Americans. Not true at all. The rates are, graduation rates are quite close. So if the United States said something like, you have to have a high school diploma or be at least 30 years old in order to vote, um, would that change the, for instance, the racial makeup of our election day electorate? I'm not proposing that. I don't support that. But I just want people to know that some of the things that they have heard or things they might suspect about how education-based voting requirements would work 
might not work that way at all. So they should think this through, look at some data, and then probably ignore the chapter and think about something else in the book that's a lot. Garrett, some people want 16-year-olds to vote. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's very, there's very clear evidence that 16-year-olds just know a lot less about the world. Um, like they bet they pass, they do much worse on, say, political knowledge tests. That's an easy objective test. But that's, uh, that, this would probably make policy worse. So what, I mean, what a point I try to emphasize is that once we stop thinking of voting as purely being a sacred right that cannot be violated and instead think of it as in part a means to the end of good governance, then we start asking, well, what kind of voters, which voters actually would help us get good governance? Um, Jason Brennan, this philosopher at Georgetown, who's awesome, um, and who was kind of blurred my book, he says, um, there's a tension between two human rights, the right to govern yourself, to, the right to, to participate in your own government, that, that's in tension with the right to be governed competently. So some people are so poorly informed that they will actually make government worse if they are allowed to participate in it. So when there's a tension between rights, um, we shouldn't assume that the right answer is going to be all of one or all of the other. And so trying to find uh, the best way forward to help to give people their right to competent government is something I think we can all strive for. Uh, you present Singapore as an example of sort of 50% less democracy rather than 10. What yes. do they get right and what do they get, where do they go too far? Well, I mean, so, so Singapore is just a, a fantastic country that has accomplished so much after starting with so little. You know, a tiny island city-state in Southeast Asia, mostly uh, made up of the descendants of Chinese immigrants, uh, but not completely. And they've done many of the things that, they've done extreme versions of many of the things I suggest in 10% Less Democracy. They have politicians with fairly long terms. They have a lot of independent agencies with you know, some degree of independence. They have a very well-educated voting public. But their restrictions on democracy are so extreme that when I try to do a ballpark estimate, it comes out to 50% less democracy than that of the rich countries. And so I think we can't recommend that because democracy is extremely valuable. I mentioned this, I discussed this with some evidence at the beginning of the book that one great thing about democracies is they almost never kill their own citizens and they essentially never have famines. This is Nobel laureate Amartya Sen's great finding that there's never been, at least in the last century, there's never been a famine in a functioning democracy. Singapore's level of democracy is low enough that it, you know, Singapore's a great place. It's a good place to visit. People should consider living there. But most countries that have that low a level of democracy do not get Singapore-style outcomes. So we can't say if you follow Singapore's plan, um, you'll get Singapore's results. That's like saying, you know, if I um, follow LeBron James's workout, pattern, I'll be a LeBron James level basketball player. That's not going to happen for me. Yeah. So Singapore got China. Lucky. China China's a country uh, like what, you know, 90% less democracy or 95% less democracy. Right, exactly. So, and, and China has good things about it and very bad things about it. Um, but Singapore is a more balanced place in a way. Like it's, it, it's obviously more admirable. But I think when we look at generalization, when we look at the statistical generalizations, the historical patterns we've seen, most countries that have Singapore's level of democracy aren't getting Singapore-style outcomes. So uh, they may have just gotten lucky. They may have something else going for them that's uh, um, important that doesn't fit into my, my framework. But we should all, all of us who aspire to trying to improve governance shouldn't just be thinking about Denmark, which gets a lot of attention in the West. 
we should be thinking about many countries, at least a small basket of countries. Denmark, Singapore, Japan, Sweden, you know, these countries all have different styles with some patterns in common and some things in different, some things that are different. And um, by looking at a few different models, I think we'll learn more than just picking one and trying to emulate that perfectly. And, and finally, is this is this just a, like an interesting thought experiment, or are can you actually see some things in the United States, are these things actually happening like in the next five to seven years? Yeah, I, I definitely think that one can see. Um, I don't know if it'll be the US, U.S. doing this, but at some point, some of the rich democracies with heavy debt burdens will create something like a council of sovereign bondholders, where bondholder representatives meet regularly with the government and issue informal opinions, maybe formal opinions, on how government should change themselves. Um, it's always, uh, countries already have restrictions on the right to vote based on cognitive skills. It's easy to imagine those getting dialed up or dialed down a bit. Longer terms for the United States House of Representatives are a hardy perennial among political nerds, and that'll probably never happen, but it's always worth thinking about. Um, I think a public health board is something that a lot of people will, that will get a lot of attention over the next 18 months to two years. Oh, and I hope that gets serious attention. I do too. Uh, my guest today has been Garrett Jones. Garrett, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.